Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Welcome back, everyone. Another month is in the books, and today's episode falls on Julie's favorite holiday. Yes, may the 4th be with all of you today as we strike back with episode 5. And if all this benefits news makes you want to escape to a galaxy far, far away, don't hop in your starfighter just yet. Let us be the Obi-Wan to your Luke. I've always wanted to do that. But before we get into intergalactic-sized topics, Justin, can you give us another R2D two-minute recap of what's happened since last month? Yes, I will do a two-minute recap, and there will be no puns in it, I promise. (laughs) So starting with MEPRA, uh, I'll provide a quick update of who is filing for reduced benefits. As of April 5th, the New York State Teamsters withdrew their current application but intend to refile. Uh, Seven applications are currently in review, with five new applications in April. Uh, The Alaska Iron Workers Pension Plan in Anchorage. The International Association of Machinists Motor City Pension Fund in Troy. The IBT Local 805 in New York City. Southwest Ohio Regional Council of Carpenters Pension Plan in Austintown, Ohio. And the United Furniture Workers Pension Fund A in Nashville, which is also a refiling. Moving on to paid sick leave, as of April 17th, the DOL says that the Obama-era executive order that establishes paid sick leave for federal contractors remains in effect, which means that it may stay long-term. And on April 5th, the Maryland House passed a paid sick leave bill with enough support to override a promised veto by the governor, Larry Hogan. The bill also passed the Senate with a veto-proof majority, ensuring that Maryland is on target to become the eighth state to require employers to provide paid sick leave. If the governor vetoes, the law will have to wait until the next legislative session in early 2018. This would give workers at least five paid sick days per year if their employer has 15 or more employees. And finally, paid family leave. The D.C. Council paid family leave law went into effect on April 7th. This law includes eight weeks of parental six weeks family, and two weeks personal sick leave. Leave is paid for via a new 0.62% payroll tax on employers. The tax will begin July 1st, 2019, and benefits will be available on July 1st, 2020. (laughs) That's great. Sounds like someone's being strangled. Uh, We need to slow it down quickly and get to our first topic. Absolutely, Justin. Time to dig in. It's no surprise that congressional efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act are still the big benefits-related news story. House Republicans continue to modify the American Health Care Act, or AHCA, in hopes of gathering enough votes for it to pass. In fact, they are rallying up the votes as we speak. So we'll see what today brings. Just a reminder, the bill, as originally proposed, kept a few ACA provisions, such as 
coverage for adult dependents up to age 26, no exclusions for pre-existing health conditions, coverage of a list of essential health benefits, and no annual or lifetime benefit limits imposed by insurers. The AHCA also had provisions that differ from ACA, including there would be no individual mandate to have health insurance and no employer mandate to offer health coverage. Insurers could impose a 30% surcharge on individuals who have a lapse in coverage of 63 days or more. And instead of subsidies, refundable tax credits for premiums that increase with age but are reduced for higher incomes would be instated. Insurers could charge older customers up to five times as much as younger customers instead of the three times as much allowed now. When 900 years old you reach, higher premiums you'll pay. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the excise tax on high-value plans, known as that Cadillac tax, would be delayed until 2025. In addition, use of health savings accounts, or HSAs, would be encouraged by raising the contribution limits and broadening the allowable uses for these accounts. Also, the AHCA would eliminate several taxes set up to help pay for ACA provisions. Now, the original bill didn't have enough support to pass the House. Isn't that right, Kelly? That's right, Julie. So the Republicans proposed some additional amendments. First, they proposed to establish a federal risk-sharing pool, also known as an invisible high-risk pool, of $15 billion to be given to states over a nine-year period. This would allow insurers to lower premiums for those who were not high-risk cases. But that still didn't sway enough members of Congress. Next, they added another amendment to make it more appealing to the more conservative GOP members. The latest amendment has a couple of major provisions. First, it would allow states to apply for waivers to allow health insurance plans in their state to opt out of certain ACA requirements. For example, the requirement to provide coverage for all essential health benefits. Now that would allow insurers to promote those limited benefit or skinny plans, right? Exactly. And it could also affect the requirement to have no annual or lifetime limits on essential health benefits. Another example, a state could apply for a waiver to let insurers charge higher premiums based on a person's health status. Some argue that this would result in unaffordable premiums for those with pre-existing conditions. So Kelly, what criteria is used to determine if a state will be granted one of those waivers? Well, the state would have to show that their waiver could achieve one or more of the following. Reduce average premiums, increase enrollment, stabilize the market or stabilize premiums for individuals with pre-existing conditions or increase the choice of health plans. The federal government would have 60 days to approve each waiver application. And the addition of this amendment pleased many of the conservative Republicans but had the opposite effect on some of the more moderate Republicans and of course the Democrats. Plus the more conservative the bill becomes the more difficult it will be to pass it in the Senate. So then where does that leave us now? Well, House Republicans certainly are not giving up and are working diligently to convince members of their party to vote for the bill. Of course, that's not the whole story. Even if the bill does pass in the House, there's still a lot that needs to happen before it becomes law. Oh dear, Master Luke, who knew the healthcare bill could be so complicated? (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, trying to understand the wrangling on the AHCA bill is as confusing as trying to figure out why the first Star Wars film is really the fourth film. Hmm. Yeah, I never really got that. So, Julie, a few months ago, I'd asked for a mini civics lesson. Specifically, I'd asked about how a federal bill becomes a law in the U.S. So what is the first step? Who comes up with the idea for a bill? The idea for the bill can come from anywhere, uh, from a representative or a senator, their staff, one of the committees, the president, a constituent, or a group. Who typically writes the bill? Often it's a staffer for the representative, the senator, or the committee, or sometimes it can be an outside expert who does it for them. And how are bills typically proposed? The representative or senator who starts or originates the bill is its primary sponsor. He or she will try to garner support for the bill before it's introduced by trying to find co-sponsors. If a bill grows out of a committee, co-sponsors can be found there. Now, lately, most bills seem to have been one party or partisan. But sometimes a bill is bipartisan with co-sponsors from both parties. Now, as a note, all revenue-raising bills, like appropriations bills, must start in the House. However, the Senate can propose or agree to amendments on this type of bill. Now, in the case of the AHCA, the draft bill was discussed and approved in three committees before it was formally introduced into the House of Representatives and given a bill number. Okay, that makes sense. So how is a bill typically introduced? Now, a bill is introduced when a chamber is in session. It's assigned a number, and the chamber leader, either the Speaker of the House or the presiding officer of the Senate, assigns the bill to one or more committees for discussion. Sometimes an identical bill is introduced into both chambers at the same time, and these are called companion bills. And how are bills debated? It's important to remember, first of all, that most bills are never discussed at all. They, quote, die in committee, unquote. Now, if a bill is discussed or taken up, it's placed on the legislative calendar and the committee reviews it. Now, committee members may get input from experts, they may hold hearings, and or they may send the bill to a subcommittee for a more in-depth review. Now, this is where the bill may get changed, and this is known as being marked up. The committee will vote on whether to send the bill onto the chamber, to table it temporarily, to postpone it indefinitely, or to completely disapprove of it so that it dies. Now, if this debate is happening in a subcommittee, the members there can vote to send the bill onto the full committee where it's voted there as well. Now, once it's in the chamber, the House or the Senate, it's debated there too. Amendments that were added by the committee can be approved or rejected at this point, and new amendments can be added. Then how does, the, uh, like, how does this vote work? In most cases, a simple majority gets a bill passed. In the Senate, it's 51, of course, because there's 100 senators. And in the House, it's 218 of the 435 representatives. If the vote is favorable, the bill moves on to the other chamber, and if it's unfavorable, it dies. So you cited this simple majority. So what's the deal with the 60 votes that I hear about in the Senate? The Senate allows for unlimited discussion and debate, including filibusters. This means debate on a bill can go on and on. To end the debate, a cloture vote is required, meaning three-fifths of the Senate or 60 members have to vote that the debate should end. 
Now, over the past several years, when we've seen partisan voting along party lines, it's been challenging to get 60 votes to end a debate, which is the only way to call for a vote on the bill itself where a simple majority will pass the bill. Julie, in this process, uh, like around this point, I typically hear about a reconciliation process. Uh, what is this referring to? Okay, because of the rules on unlimited debate in the Senate, Congress sometimes chooses to use what's known as the reconciliation process, which limits debate on a bill to 20 hours in the Senate. So in other words, there can be no filibuster. Now, when the debate ends after the 20 hours or before a vote is called, and a simple majority is all that's needed to pass a bill. Now, in order to use the reconciliation process, a bill needs to have some sort of fiscal or budget impact, tax, spending, or debt implications. This process can only be used a limited number of times per year, so stay tuned to see what Congress will do this year, especially with health care and tax reform. So the next step, what happens when a bill approved in one chamber goes to the second chamber? Okay, it is sent to committee where it may or may not be debated. So the same process is followed as what I mentioned before. That means the second chamber, say the Senate, may not even choose to debate a bill, much less vote on it. But say they do. They mark up the bill and they approve it. But now it's different from the bill that was passed by the first chamber, say the House. So what happens now? These are different bills. The bill goes to conference, to a conference committee made up of committee members from the chamber that originated the bill. The bill is debated, maybe it's changed, there can be a back and forth between the chambers, and that can happen more than once. The bill that is eventually approved by both chambers has to be identical. So what's the next step in that process? The bill then goes to the president, and there are three options for the president. First, the president can sign the bill into law. Second, he or she can veto the bill within 10 days of receiving it. Now, if that happens, it goes back to the chamber of origin, and the chamber must still be in session. Third, the president can choose not to sign the bill, nor to veto it within 10 days, and then it becomes a law. Now, if Congress adjourns abruptly without giving the president the chance to sign or veto the bill within 10 days, the unsigned bill does not become a law. This is known as a pocket veto. So what if a bill is vetoed? Is it then dead? A vetoed bill goes back to the chamber of origin. The chamber's leader can choose to kill the bill, postpone or table it, send it back to a committee, or open debate on the floor again and call for a vote. Now, if the bill is approved by two-thirds majority, it's sent to the other chamber for a vote. That chamber must also approve it by two-thirds majority to override the presidential veto. And if this happens, the bill becomes law. So now we all understand why so few bills ever become law. Do or do not, there is no try in passing a bill. <laughs> Thank you very much, Julie. And remember that you can keep a close eye on the latest Washington happenings impacting benefit plans with the International Foundation's Benefit Transition Tracker at ifebp.org slash transition tracker. Even beyond the AHCA bill, we've been hearing a lot about challenges in the health insurance market and with the ACA exchanges. Kelly, can you tell us what's happening there? Sure, Julie. Some of the challenges in the health insurance market stem from the uncertainty surrounding the cost-sharing reduction subsidy payments 
for insurance companies that participate in the exchanges. We talked about them a little bit last month, as well as the pending court case, House versus Price. As a reminder, that lawsuit was originally filed in 2014 by the House of Representatives, saying the Obama administration had overstepped its authority by spending funds to reimburse insurance companies for cost-sharing subsidies that Congress did not appropriate. The court initially ruled in favor of the House, but the Obama administration appealed. Because that appeal had not been ruled on by the time President Trump was inaugurated, the Trump administration asked the court to delay its ruling because it thought Congress would quickly enact legislation to repeal and replace the law, thus making that lawsuit irrelevant. They told the court they'd file status reports every three months beginning on May 22nd. If the current administration abandons the appeal, insurance companies would lose those reimbursements and be even less likely to want to offer insurance through the exchanges. Last time, we reported that President Trump and Speaker Ryan said those reimbursements would continue while the lawsuit was pending. So what's the latest on that, Kelly? Well, we've seen some ups and downs over the past few weeks. In mid-April, President Trump reportedly said he might cut off these payments to force Democrats into negotiating on health care reform. The Department of Health and Human Services first said payments would continue. Then the administration said they were still deciding whether the payments would continue. Around that same time, a coalition of eight health care insurance and business groups got together and urged the government to make the payments to prevent insurance marketplace destabilization. The funding agreement reached by Congress on April 30th to keep the government going until September 30th did not include budgeted money to make the payments. Therefore, it's up to the administration to decide whether to continue these payments, and the fate of those payments is unclear at this time. But what's the latest on insurance companies participating in the exchanges going forward in 2018? Well, I can address that. Um, if insurance companies plan to participate in the exchanges in 2018, they need to submit applications and rate tables to the Department of Health and Human Services by June 21st. We've already heard that several insurance companies won't participate or will cut back their participation for 2018. Humana, for example, has said they won't participate. Molina is in a wait-and-see mode, reportedly watching legislative developments. Earlier this year, Aetna said they were considering cutting back their participation. For example, in 2015, they offered coverage in 15 states, and they cut that back to four states in 2017. In April, they said they'd no longer offer coverage in Iowa. Also in April, Wellmark Blue Cross Blue Shield said they'd pull out of Iowa as well. Anthem is considering scaling back significantly. Now, as a reminder, in 2017, Five states, Alaska, Alabama, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Wyoming, and 960 counties across the U.S. had only one insurer offering coverage through the exchanges. And most counties in Arizona and North Carolina have only one insurer. So it's interesting to know what will this picture look like in 2018. Kelly, a quick question for you. Uh, the exchanges that we've been referring to uh, operate primarily in the individual marketplace. Why would our listeners, who are probably most likely planned sponsors, be concerned? 
While it's true that employers who offer their employees health coverage may not be directly involved in the exchanges, they can be affected by what happens to the exchanges. If insurance companies are not earning enough revenue in the exchanges and individual in health insurance market, they're likely to seek more revenue in the group market. That means the premiums employers pay could go up. Also, employers may encourage outside options for health coverage for certain groups, such as part-time employees, adult dependents after age 26, COBRA recipients, and retirees who are not eligible for Medicare. If the exchanges become too expensive or fail, those options disappear. Well, that makes sense. Thank you very much, Kelly. Before we dive into our next topic, I'd like to address another costly risk to employee benefit plans, fraud. Learn where fraud can occur in your plan at the International Foundation's new Fraud Prevention Institute, coming July 17th and 18th in Chicago. Fraud prevention goes a long way to saving your plan time and money, and this conference will uncover emerging trends, share the latest in cybersecurity and deterrence of data breaches, and provide guidance for internal controls and risk prevention. Find program details and register at ifebp.org slash fraud prevention. Help me, Fraud Prevention Institute. You're my only hope. Oh, thank you, Leah. Well, and Kelly, too. Moving away from healthcare, Last time we mentioned that Alexander Acosta was nominated for Secretary of Labor. What's the latest on that, Justin? Yeah, so Alexander Acosta was confirmed as Labor Secretary by the Senate on April 27th and sworn in on the next day, the 28th. He had his confirmation hearings on March 22nd, and we got some insights into his views on important benefits topics, particularly the fiduciary rule, the PBGC, and the DOL overtime rule. First, the fiduciary rule, which, as a reminder, requires financial advisors to act in their clients' best interests. While getting questioned, Acosta wouldn't commit to supporting the rule. He was asked if he generally supports the rule, and Acosta cited the executive action from President Donald Trump, asking the Department of Labor to review and possibly revise or rescind the rule. He also stated that the rule goes, quote, far beyond addressing the standard of conduct for financial advisors. Moving on to PBGC, in those same hearings, Acosta was asked about the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, specifically about the status of the multi-employer pension fund and the pensions of the 400,000 member Central States Southeast and Southwest Area Pension Fund. This is important as the PBGC fund could run out of money as early as 2025. Acosta said that he hasn't seen a plan that has worked in the past decade to save the PBGC's multi-employer fund. He also wouldn't commit to ensuring that retirees won't have their benefits cut from the level that they're currently receiving, something Acosta said comes with a, quote, $60 billion price tag. Acosta also stated that, quote, this is a fundamental issue that we've got to think about, and it's not just the executive branch, but the executive branch working with Congress. Finally, the DOL overtime rule, which is currently on hold, pending federal litigation in Texas. Uh, Just a reminder, this is the Obama administration rule to make about 4 million workers newly eligible for overtime pay by doubling the salary threshold for automatic eligibility to $47,500. This rule has sparked some debate, and Acosta noted that the judge in the case has raised questions about whether the DOL should instead focus on the actual duties workers perform versus a specific salary threshold. 
In the confirmation hearing, Acosta is quoted as saying, one of the questions that's in litigation is, does a dollar threshold supersede the duties test? And as a result, is it not in accordance with the law? Well, as is common in Senate confirmation hearings, we did get a glimpse, but not many details. Yes, Mr. Acosta had his deflector shields up pretty high during that hearing. <laughs> well, we'll have to watch what happens with the DOL moving forward. And another area we need to watch is tax reform. Justin, can you fill us in on that? Yeah, so Congress and the administration are in the early stages of some tax reform discussions. Uh, while there's a good chance that significant tax legislation will be enacted, the process could take up much of 2017, with enactment likely near the end of the year. The thing that we have focused most of our attention on at the Foundation is possible changes to the taxation of retirement plans specifically. Administration officials lacked some consistency on their part of the tax proposal since they unveiled an outline of the plan. The White House proposed to remove nearly all tax deductions, including those at the state and local level. During a briefing last week, Press Secretary Sean Spicer was asked if President Trump's plan would affect 401k contributions specifically. Spicer said that the plan protected charitable giving and mortgage deductions and quote, that's it. Later in April, the White House stated that President Trump's tax plan will not affect 401k contributions. This is important because contributions to a 401k plan reduce taxable income and earnings in the accounts grow tax-free until withdrawn. This is a significant motivator for individuals to save for retirement. Truly wonderful having a pension is. <laughs> The International Foundation has more about President Trump's first 100 days in office in this week's member webcast. If you missed it live, listen anytime on demand. Access the webcast at ifebp.org webcasts. All right, we're ready to roll the credits on our May episode. Thank you both for your expertise, and a special thank you to the Foundation staff for lending their voice talents to the episode. Julie, any other insights before we conclude? Well, channeling my inner Yoda, impossible to see the future is. Nothing more will I teach you today. All right. And a final note to our listeners. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. And if you're feeling extra generous, give us a review as well. It helps other listeners to find us. Thank you very much. You ready? Don't record this. Okay, all right, all right. Father. Keep your child on your health care until he is 26, you must. Your health care bill has failed me for the last time. It's a bit I don't know. I think that's, that's my Chewy. It, it won me an award in uh, Disney World. I got to wear a shirt. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.